welcome to the intro before the intro. So what's new with the Bookish Society? We've been listening to your feedback and have tweaked our offerings for the spring semester. What will be changing and what does this mean for your family? We're going to move to a two-track system. We're going to offer the choice of bookish goodness in either book clubs or instructional class formats. I know that sounds fancy, so what does that actually mean? If you already have a kid enrolled in bookish and you love the approach exactly how it is, great. You can enroll in one of our book clubs for the spring, which will be January through May 2022. We're still going to have weekly or bi-weekly assigned books. We'll meet every week to discuss with the current group as it stands. This is a more laid back approach for kids who want to delve deep into all the books like we already do. Fan out about it. It'll supplement their free reading time. We're still going to hash it all out. We're still going to have author visits. And as a bonus, you're going to be getting some bookish society swag. This is an excellent choice for families looking to grow readers by keeping things fun and low stakes. We also have people asking for more. Perhaps... You're looking to outsource your entire language arts and you would like a more rigorous experience with writing instruction and assignments and formal feedback. I can do that. Classes will keep a similar reading schedule to the roundtables, usually even use the same books, but we're going to supplement with a textbook. There'll be weekly assignments. There will be explicit writing instruction and formal direct feedback and a final course grade, which is going to be pass fail. This is an excellent choice for families looking to supply evidence of learning to either charter schools or school boards, or maybe you just run a tight ship and you want all that instructional load taken off of you so you can concentrate on teaching math. All that said, there'll be more details upcoming. Registration will open up on October 1st. The best thing is it's all cheaper. It's all cheaper than before because we're getting so many kids. I don't need to charge as much per kid. If you want more details, I'm adding classes to the website practically daily. We are at thebookishsociety.com. Here is our newest podcast. Welcome, listeners, to the Modern Classical Education at Home podcast. We are Jen Naughton, Courtney Ostaff, and Andrew Campbell. Today, we'll be talking about standards, what they are, what they aren't, and why they matter to homeschoolers. Courtney is our resident expert on standards. In fact, she wrote a book that talks about them, the Teaching Online Handbook. So, Jen and I are going to be grilling her. So, Jen, why don't you start? Okay, so Courtney, tell us what exactly are standards? Standards are the knowledge, skills, and abilities that children should possess at different ages and stages. And as a parent, we're already familiar with a good many of these. For example, that children should start walking between 9 and 15 months, or that they should have 50 words by age 2. The problem comes when we begin to distinguish between what Geary called biological primary knowledge, or things that children just pick up, like walking and talking, and cultural artifacts 
subjects like reading, math, and history. Because the latter are not innate, and in fact, they're artificial constructs of our human culture. We must deliberately and specifically teach these to children. For example, with the exception of a few hyperlexic and or profoundly gifted children who will distinguish the phonetic code from their surroundings, we must systematically teach children phonics. The academic standards come into play when we say children should learn to read this well at that grade level. Okay, so then what's the common core? Well, I think it behooves us to step back and do a little history here. We're old enough to remember when the Cold War was happening and the space race, and we, the USA, were afraid that the Soviets were going to beat us to space, and we felt like we needed more engineers. So we had this renewed national emphasis on our education system with things like the A Nation at Risk report in 1983. Here's a quote. If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. So, as the nation, I know, right? So Reagan era. I know, I'm scared. So, as the nation geared up to do battle in the late 1980s and early 1990s, the U.S. Department of Education quite sensibly decided that we would need to know when we won and awarded grants to various professional organizations to determine national standards in all subjects. To quote Diane Ravitch, We thought that if the standards were written by teachers and scholars in every field, if they reflected the wisdom of teachers, if they were faithful to the field, states and districts would find them worthy of adoption in whole or in part, end quote. Okay, but in 1994, Lynn V. Cheney, fresh from her post as chairperson of the National Endowments for the Humanities, which, by the way, had partially funded these tentative national standards, she attacked the history standards written at UCLA for political bias. And it became a huge cause celebre. And the idea of federally sponsored national standards became a political third rail, something that no sane politician wanted to touch. But still, we had this gripping national urgency about the quality of our educational system. And it was in this climate that No Child Left Behind, known as NCLB, was passed. Because you couldn't tell people what to teach, and nobody wanted to get into the politics of it. The standards themselves were taboo. The law focused not on content, but on test results. But only in math and English language arts. No politics here. No siree. Except that NCLB needed a national set of standards to decide what to test on. And so in the height of the federal privatization movement, the feds reached out to lesser known organizations, specifically, quote, the National Governors Association, the Council of Chief State School Officers, a business sponsored group called Achieve, and a group led by David Coleman called Student Achievement Partners, end quote. David Coleman, by the way, was president of the College Board, which owns the SAT. Then the feds refused to give states federal funding, which is typically 8% of all school funding. So it's a big chunk of change unless they adopted these privately written standards in English language arts and math, which are now known as the Common Core Standards. So what other kinds of standards are there? Well, here in the United States, 
individual states have content standards and objectives that are to be taught at each grade level. In most cases, these state standards are based on the national standards developed by national organizations like the National Council for the Social Studies. Sometimes the standards are supported by philanthropic organizations like the Carnegie Corporation of New York, who we have to thank for the next generation science standards. Other subjects also have national standards. For example, there are national core arts standards. There are world readiness standards for learning languages. Keep in mind that all of these national standards are purely voluntary and states choose to adopt them or not. And it's also important to remember that prior to this era of standards, many teachers taught, well, basically whatever they felt like. Really, I remember my father designing his public school science classes in the early 1980s. This assumption that all students have to meet the same academic standards at the same time is a relatively new idea. Now, I mean, it's not entirely new. There were some exceptions like the New York Regents exams. But historically, teachers had much, much, much more professional latitude than they do today. And private schools tend to retain a significant part of this educational independence. For example, in West Virginia, private schools do not have to be accredited and they do not have to teach the state standards. And of course, homeschoolers everywhere pretty much still do have that freedom. So here's the big question I'm sure our listeners are asking. Why should homeschoolers care about standards? Aren't they kind of a public school thing? That's a good question. And there are a couple of reasons, actually. One is that you might not keep homeschooling very long. In fact, quote, Eisenberg found that only 48% of homeschool children from religious homes and only 15% of those from secular homes continue to homeschool for more than six years. Homeschooling grows less common as children age even among highly educated, more affluent families, end quote. So you might want to make sure that your children don't have any gaps when they slide back into public schools. You and Jed and I are in that 15%. Even if you're homeschooling for religious reasons, it's important to remember that you're gambling your child's future essentially on the flip of a coin if you decide to ignore the standards. Are you going to be in that 50% that keep homeschooling? In addition, we can't always automatically assume that homeschooling beats public schooling every time. There are some really excellent public schools out there. I know I live in one of the best districts in my state. And in fact, there's not much research on homeschooling, but what there is pretty conclusively states, quote, homeschooling does not have much of an effect at all on student achievement once family background variables are controlled for, end quote. Now, there are a couple of smaller studies that are well done, good quality research, that make the point that structured homeschooling does give an advantage, but more research is required to definitively say that's true as a general proposition. In the end, you, you do want to do at least as well as your child would do in local public schools. And how can you do that if you don't know what they're doing? How important do you think it is for homeschoolers to choose curricula that are aligned with the Common Core or any of the other published standards? You might care about the Common Core because you want to make sure that you're covering everything. Reading and math are kind of obvious, but if you can check the scope and sequence of a math curriculum against, say, the Common Core standards that almost all states adopted, you could probably assume that it's at least a start towards a good math curriculum. 
However, alignment does not equal quality. It just means that the content is covered in the prescribed way. Content can be covered very badly and still meet common core standards. Alternatively, you can have programs that don't meet the common core standards, either because the information is out of sequence, like they cover it in second grade rather than fourth, or perhaps it omits some sort of esoteric skill like box and whisker plots, or even because it's not meant to cover all the standards. Maybe it's just phonics or just handwriting. And yet that program can still be very high quality. But, you know, standards are more than just reading and math. West Virginia, for example, has standards for arts education, technology and computer science education, wellness education, and even student success, which they defined as the attitude, knowledge, skills, and dispositions all students shall develop in relation to personal and social development, academic and learning development, career and life planning, and global citizenship. One of the third grade standards is express emotions in socially acceptable ways. And another is participate in school-wide and community service projects. Now, am I going to pay attention to all of those? No, I might scan it once a year and decide that if my eight-year-old is still having meltdowns, I might consider a therapist. And while many folks will participate in community service projects with their church, they might also consider scouts and 4-H and so on. I also made a conscious decision to ignore teaching my seven-year-old about supply and demand curves, for example. At that age, I think most children are still nailing down exactly how money works. I don't think we need to indoctrinate them into capitalism just yet. Similarly, I tend to agree with Susan Weisbauer's approach to teaching writing. The more research I read about teaching reading and writing, the more I think that asking kindergartners to write paragraphs, like my local schools do, is a bad idea. In fact, the research aligns very nicely with, for example, writing with ease. So, are they important? It depends on your goals for your homeschool. So, the common core standards are pretty overwhelming to look at. And it's hard for a lot of people, even trained teachers, to see how they connect to what actually happens in a classroom or around your kitchen table. So how do you actually use them? In my opinion, planning is critical for successful homeschool learning. In my experience, creating a high-quality learning experience for my children requires weeks of planning before we begin and significant amounts of dedicated planning time during our learning experience. If it's important to you to set up your homeschool to cover your state standards, I would you know, count the number of standards and then divide them by the number of instructional days you're planning on. For example, in West Virginia, where I live, there are 28 standards for eighth grade mathematics. If I went by West Virginia's instructional days, that's 180 days or 36 weeks of five-day-a-week learning time. That would mean that we would cover yeah, a standard every six days. Now, Given interruptions for doctor's visits, the February blahs, winter holidays, yada, 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 I think it's safe to assume five days of instructional time per standard or 140 days of on-task time. There are five strands of eighth grade mathematics in West Virginia organized into 10 clusters, so I would make those clusters my 10 units. And each unit contains different numbers of standards. The smallest contains one standard and the biggest contains five standards. And then I would need to make sure that my units are scheduled appropriately. Now, do I actually do this? 
Nope. Why would I reinvent the wheel when there are some truly outstanding homeschool curricula available? What I do is I pick high quality instructional materials that I know will at least cover the bare minimum of the standards and hopefully do better. In short, rather than use standards to create assignments, use assignments to meet standards. Make sure the work will cover the standard, but don't use the standards as your spine. They're the signposts, not the road. Now, if all I have on my shelf is a curriculum that I don't think is adequate, or perhaps no curriculum at all, I will look for a better curriculum. Homeschoolers can do this. We have the freedom to buy different textbooks and encyclopedias and other texts as we wish. As a homeschool parent, I invest hundreds of dollars in books and curricula every year. Perhaps a parent is unluckily unable to lay hands on a new paper textbook. One can make a reasonable argument that hunting down used copies of an older edition is a worthwhile use of your time. For example, the 2007 edition of a good middle school science textbook is currently $3.50 a copy on the used book market. However, if for whatever reason a parent cannot lay hands on a textbook, they should spend some time researching sources for good free text. OER, or Open Educational Resources, are popular free resource libraries, although eh, I gotta be honest, the lack of expertise in instructional design means that these materials are often a poorer quality than professionally designed curricula, and the history of the movement also means that most materials are more suitable for higher education than K through 12. But for example, in the case of science standards, a parent might use a CK-12 flexbook for a downloadable, OCR-capable, printable PDF. So here's another thing I've wondered about. What's the difference between content standards and learning objectives? That's a great question. So most states, we already know, have their own standards based on those national standards. But standards and objectives, usually posted on a state website, aren't learning objectives. For example, fundamentally understanding how fractions work, that one-third is more than one-fourth, is something that takes time to develop. Mastery doesn't occur in a single lesson. (laughs) If it did, McDonald's third-pounder burgers wouldn't have flopped. (laughs) Instead, (laughs) fundamentally understanding fractions is a learning objective that parents are going to need to touch several times over the course of a year or even several years. Similarly, Writing a biographical essay isn't a standard. It meets CCSS.ELA-literacy.W.7.2, quote, write informative explanatory text to examine a topic and convey ideas, concepts, and information through the selection, organization, and analysis of relevant content, end quote. The associated substandards ask for an introduction, organization, development, transitions, and a conclusion, all of which can be met by a biographical essay, but the standards don't actually say anything about a biographical essay as such. Instead, when designing your child's learning experiences, think in terms of the learning objective. What are your goals? When you create your child's daily work sets, the learning objective should be what you're looking at. For example, adding like fractions, that's a learning objective. Alternatively, writing a thesis statement is a learning objective. Each of these is a tiny objective embedded in a larger context of knowledge, skills, and abilities. And that way, when your kids say, what are we doing today? You can confidently answer with a plain English learning objective. Honey, today you are going to learn how to add like fractions. Let's just say 
I mean, this this could be true. In fact, it is true. I have a textbook. I want to use it for science. So how do I figure out how the content lines up with the standards? Can I just work through the book, like front to back? Let's walk through an example. So I live in West Virginia, which has adopted the uh, <clears throat> the next generation science standards, the NGSS. Tell us uh, how you really feel about those, Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's not just me. I'm not the only one. But <laughs> so there are 21 content standards for sixth grade, which leaves 15 weeks open as needed for that 36 weeks, right? So the first West Virginia standard is S.6.LS.1, quote, students will construct an explanation that predicts patterns of interactions among organisms across multiple ecosystems, end quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, what? So uh, I Googled it, right? And up pops in GSS MS-LS2-2, quote, construct an explanation that predicts patterns of interactions among organisms across multiple ecosystems. And then they give some examples, which are competitive, predatory, and mutually beneficial. Ah, now we're talking. Because, for example, we have wisely purchased a copy of a textbook. In this case, I'm looking at Holt Science and Technology Life Science. A parent can check the index for, say, predator. And so, section three of chapter 18 is about interactions of living things. And it includes this sentence, ecologists have described four main ways that species and individuals affect each other, competition, predators and prey, symbiotic relationships, and co-evolution. Excellent. Now we know where we can start our hypothetical biology studies. Now, I also happen to notice that chapter 18 is the start of unit six in the textbook, which is on ecology. And very handily, section two of chapter 18 is titled, Living Things Need energy, and it reviews the role of photosynthesis, which happily beats S.6.LS.3, as well as food chains and webs, which is the next standard. Luckily, it even comes with a handy bit of math practice to meet S.6.LS.5, quote, students will analyze and interpret data to provide evidence for the effects of resource availability on organisms and population of organisms in an ecosystem. And then section three, types of interactions will provide the material for or S.6.LS.6. Yay! So the only two standards not covered in Chapter 18 are S.6.LS.2. Students will evaluate competing design solutions for maintaining biodiversity and ecosystem services. And S.6.LS.7. Students will construct an argument supported by empirical evidence that changes to physical or biological components of an ecosystem affect populations. All right, so further research in the index shows that the skills practice lab in chapter 19 can meet that first one, and we can do it pretty cheap. And then the language arts activity in chapter 19 can meet the last standard, but it's probably going to require some scaffolding. Most kids are not going to be able to do that by themselves. So altogether, the four chapters of unit six in the textbook cover nearly one third of the required content standards. Now, given in that scaffolding to review photosynthesis and animal behavior, which is arguably worth reviewing the two chapters on that. That's six total chapters. And then one third of 36 instructional weeks could be yeah, about 10. So you have about four more weeks that you could add covering a chapter a week. And then you could use a week to review scientific methods, chapter one, that's always a good idea. And you could do another week on evolution, which is chapter seven and eight, which is super relevant to ecosystem effects on biodiversity. And that gives you a whole week just to review and working on the final details of that writing assignment and 
in the lab report. And conveniently, ta-da, those assignments will help meet several of the general reading and writing standards. And that's how you do it. You just do this over and over again until you get a tentative plan, including types of assignments, is written for each week. You usually don't need to do the whole textbook because those are like doorstops with tons of excess information thrown in. So what if you're not using a textbook? Maybe you're using a lit-based program or you do the Charlotte Mason style homeschooling with living books thing. How would you go about making sure you're hitting standards in that situation? Even lit-based programs use a spine. So a spine is a text that the parent will refer back to and expand on throughout the study. And so much like a spine holds the body together, a spine text is the organizing structure of a course. While not all spines are textbooks, all textbooks are spines. So ideally, your learner would have a copy of the spine. Now, it's illegal for you to just copy most books and hand them to your children, but you can use the organization of the spine for your own reference when creating materials. And if the standards are all touched upon in the spine, then you're probably good to go. <laughs> While I have very slowly, curmudgeonly come around to the utility of some lit-based programs, I still favor units of study that use textbooks for most subjects. In my opinion, doing something like teaching chemistry through literature is something that really only works for kids who are a, gifted at reading, and B, have the background knowledge to read through some fairly dense texts, which is a minority of today's children. It's much more difficult to ensure that you're covering those standards when you have to flip around in a novel to find them. What I would not do is turn to Teachers Pay Teachers or something pretty but insubstantial on Instagram. Copyright infringement is rampant. The products are generic. You'll have to adapt them to your homeschool. And frankly, they're just terrible. <laughs> they have bad directions, bad assignments, bad assessments, bad depths of knowledge, bad knowledge building, little support for diverse learners, and they're just boring. <laughs> Are there subjects that you think really, really need to be aligned with the Common Core or other standards to be taught effectively? I'm never going to say that you 100% must do a thing a certain way because I have seen some pretty awesome homeschoolers just totally ignore academic standards and their kids turned out just fine. That said, when that happens successfully, what people don't realize, it's almost always because A, the child in question is either moderately or profoundly gifted and absorbs information like a dry sponge, and B, the parent excels at parceling out information to their child. For all the rest of us, especially for homeschoolers who have children with one or more learning disabilities or neurodiversities, we really should at least check sometimes and make sure that we're on the same planet as other people. What we don't want is what happened to a childhood friend of mine who has homeschooled Charlotte Mason style, ended up at Cornell and Ithaca, and then failed out spectacularly because she didn't have the supporting knowledge base and skills she needed to succeed. Now she's working a less than minimum wage job and is really quite furious with her parents. More than that, while I like to think I'm at least 
moderately skilled as a teacher. <laughs> I like to think that anyway. Standards have often been written by large groups of subject matter experts and highly skilled teachers and then refined over time. Who am I to say that all of their combined judgment and wisdom doesn't matter to my child? I'm gonna entertain the possibility that they put these things in this order for a reason and that maybe I should at least think about doing it this way. So do you have any examples for high quality instructional materials that move from a standard to an actual lesson? Sure. Core knowledge does this quite effectively. They meet or exceed the common core standards as well as the next generation science standards. And as core knowledge says on their science FAQ, quote, even an experienced and scientifically knowledgeable educator can get confused in navigating the maze of hyperlinks that make up the online NGSS guidelines. One aim of the K through eight CK science sequence is to offer a valid interpretation of NGSS requirements in the form of focused user friendly and content-specific guidelines of practical use to teachers, end quote. Folks, the NGSS are a hot mess and everybody knows it. Now you do too. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So let's take a look at one particular unit and see how CK has interpreted the standards into a usable format. For second grade, Core Knowledge has tackled the NGSS standard structure and properties of matter, which are actually four separate statements. So Number one, it is plan and conduct an investigation to describe and classify different kinds of materials by their observable properties. Two, analyze data obtained from testing different materials to determine which materials have the properties that are best suited for an intended purpose. Three, make observations to construct an evidence-based account of how an object made of a small set of pieces can be disassembled and made into a new object. And four, construct an argument with evidence that some changes caused by heating or cooling can be reversed and some cannot. Keep in mind that these standards are for seven-year-olds. We can't get grown adults to analyze testing data for suitable purposes, arguments about wearing masks, anyone, or deal with whether or not changes caused by heating and cooling are irreversible. See also climate change. And don't even get me started on having seven-year-olds plan and conduct scientific investigations. If it were that easy, you wouldn't need seven years of graduate school to get a PhD in the science. So, how did Core Knowledge deal with this ridiculousness? What they did was they identified learning objectives for each lesson that supported the standard. For example, in lesson one, students are to, quote, define matter, identify characteristics of solids, liquids, and gases, explain properties of matter, and classify materials as solids, liquids, and gases, end quote. This is much more developmentally appropriate. And it meets the classify different kinds of materials by their observable properties standard, as well as begins to tackle some changes caused by heating or cooling can be reversed and some cannot. So then they take those four learning objectives for this lesson and they divide them up over eight class periods. And each of the objectives are then subdivided into components. For example, on day one of lesson one, students are expected to observe changes to materials with a hands-on task involving dissolving salt and water in plastic containers versus dissolving it in water and paper bags. And this is then reinforced with a story from their student textbook. Note that this is all perfect 
perfectly developmentally appropriate, and yet it meets the NGSS. Would most of us have thought about those standards in this way? Probably not. This is the benefit of having a team of instructional designers and subject matter experts create high-quality instructional materials. They do the hard work of interpreting the standards, so you can do the hard work of teaching your children. That's it for today's podcast. Does anyone have news to share? Longtime listeners will remember that we used to run a secular homeschooling group on Facebook. We recently stepped down as admins of the group, and the new team has changed the name of the group to Inclusive Academic Homeschoolers. The group still has the same focus on academic homeschooling, and it's open to discussions of both secular and religious curriculum. If you're not already a member, check it out. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Then tune in next time as we bring you more real talk about homeschooling.